Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, we explore the Dark Tower as a series. Let's start the show. Rather than do a book recap, here's our series recap. The man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger followed. After a series of adventures, the gunslinger, Roland DeShane, made his way to the Dark Tower, defeating the man in black and others along the way. I think that's as good a summary as, as anything. That's almost as good as that, that opening line, I would, I would judge. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Jay, we've made it to the end. We looked at different sections of all eight books along the way. We took them one piece at a time. We did our best to avoid spoilers. But now here in episode 55, we've read everything, every word from the beginning to the end. And now we can discuss it as a whole and point out whatever we want. as we talk about this whole series that Stephen King has given to us. Yeah. The first thing that I think we should talk about is heartbreak. I think that finishing this, getting to the end of the story, is always kind of sad. Getting to the end of any long story, especially if it's a good story and you've really enjoyed living with and journeying with the characters like we have, just the fact that it's ending, it's kind of a bummer. But there's also the heartbreak that this series started out so well. The first three books are just like such an incredible beginning together. And the whole series, even along the way beyond the first three books, had so much promise. But I think that by the time we got to the final pages of book seven, we kind of have to examine the fact that the execution wasn't exactly up to what the story could have been, perhaps. What do you think? Yes, I would agree. I think for me, especially. It feels as if the way in the which the series of books was written over a long period of time in spurts from big gaps between books one and two and three and four, and then five, six, and seven coming right on top of each other and sort of written in one sitting. And the way that King's life changed from the 19-year-old who first penned the first line of The Gunslinger to the middle-aged man who finished book seven after having his life almost taken away from him. I think his goals for the series changed along the way. Yeah. Because he did not have a, a plan, I think, for the entire series, it shows. And there are significant tonal shifts, significant shifts in where 
I think the characters were heading and where they should have gone and what actually happened. And as a whole, while I can enjoy pieces of the series, such as book five, which I think is a great standalone story, Mm -hmm. when you look at it as part of the bigger series, things like that sort of fall apart for me because there's this whole promise of such great ideas and it just seems like they either weren't followed up on like they could have been or not executed like they should have been. There's something about that too, with like the, the standalone story of wolves of the Kala. It's, it almost seems like King focused on the wrong things, not bad things, but instead of taking certain elements of the story and carrying them forward, he focused on things like the Kamala dance. Hmm. And once he invented the idea of the Kamala dance and the word Kamala and all of its usage, it permeated everything in Roland's world to the point of, I think, being a detriment and a distraction. I like the idea of Roland being this consummate diplomat, that he knows a little bit about every culture that he has or might encounter uh, along the way as a gunslinger. So when he gets to Colibrin Sturgis, he pulls that little factoid about the Kamala dance out of his ass and does the dance and wins over the crowd, right? But then once they move on beyond the, the Kala, maybe he should stop saying Kamala come come all the time. And maybe King should stop saying it as the narrator. So it was an interesting piece of world building, but we didn't hear anybody using those types of words in all the other places and all the other times that Roland has has traveled. So it didn't make sense for it to continue on beyond that as if it's everywhere. It just made it feel forced and artificial. So that's just one example of the poor execution. I think King was trying to do world building and can maintain a consistent world. And instead it made it feel like it was just another world. Yeah. And part of that is, you know, I don't think King is expected to be a world builder along the lines of J.R.R. Tolkien, who I think you could ask him anything about the entire history of Middle Earth Tolkien, and you know he would have an answer for it and would create whole languages for it and have an entire history of all the characters. King's not that type of writer. No. And I don't expect him to be. But to some extent, when you set up a series in which myths are going to play a big part and the history of this plays you know the history of the line of eld plays a big part and what post-apocalyptic thing happened that changed the world and how did that make the world move on when you start to introduce that i there is some expectation that you're going to carry that through in some way and be consistent to it and without planning that all out it does seem like it just isn't there and the ideas that you talked about in book one that are so vivid and book two, even when we get to where Shardik is and all that, it's just, or book three, I guess is Shardik. I still, after reading all these books, sort of can't picture how all of this fits together. What was the world before it moved on? What were the old ones? What's the robotic stuff? It it still doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think about it. Mm Mm-hmm. The Crimson King stuff doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think about it. When you read it like we did, a section at a time, and you can get very caught up in the moments that you're in and the set pieces that you're in and the little piece of your story that you're in. But when you step back and look at it, you're, it can be very 
jarring to think, wait a minute, how is this all connected and how does it all work? And luckily, King has this escape valve of, hey, the world's moved on and things have changed and there are other worlds in this and there's many different things and I can fudge this stuff because there's this excuse that, hey, the world's just always changing because the Dark Tower's falling apart. You can criticize it and be able to explain it away. Yeah. But that doesn't feel good to me. That's an interesting point you made, though, about looking at it a section at a time and maybe not feeling the disjointedness as acutely as when as you do when you look at it as a whole. Because I've heard a lot of criticism about criticism in terms of even like the very nature of what we're doing about podcasting, about something that we love. When people talk about a TV series and they say, this episode was bad and this episode was bad and this episode was bad. And there's always a defense that you need to wait until you've seen the whole series or the whole season at least to really see how that one or two episode failure might actually be an important part of the story or the structure or the character building. So stop looking at these discrete moments and look at the bigger picture. Whereas what you're saying is kind of the opposite. In the discrete moments of the Dark Tower series, we can find the things that are awesome and they stand alone and they are, they're great. But when you try to fit this puzzle together, it doesn't really click. And that's kind of a shame. Yeah. Although I will say, as we've been doing this, I've enjoyed sort of seeing each of these different books being so different from the others as a snapshot into who King was as a writer at the time he wrote them. And it was almost okay that, you know, because every book was so different than the ones that came before, that disjointedness was consistent. And then he did five, six, and seven as a piece. So now it's like, it's inconsistency is inconsistent. <laughs> yes. So that even, that makes it feel even more disjointed. And yeah, if he had written all through, if this were only the last three books, it would feel so different. And if, if it were only the first four books, or maybe even the first five, and it stopped at the fifth book, and the fifth book was just yet another style, yet another version of King, I think it might even feel more of a piece because of that. Like, just you have to accept the fact that they're all different from each other. Yeah. I was not a huge fan of Quantum Leap, that it was a show that I watched all the time when it was on, but I did watch it occasionally. And to your point about how when things come to an end, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I almost wonder if, and King warns us about this, like he says right before Roland enters the tower, like, hey, stop here. You don't want to read on. Like, yeah, because it's, you're going to, you might be disappointed and I'm just telling you what happened and this isn't, I'm just the vessel of what, telling you what happened and you might not be happy with it. But I almost wonder if the series would have been better if, Roland never got to the Dark Tower. And we just Wow, that that's a hot take. He becomes more of an endless wanderer, which is what he sort of becomes anyways, with the fact that it's looping. I think even getting to the tower brought up so many more questions than answers that I would almost like to have just seen a title card at the end, like Quantum Leap of Roland Deshane never found the Dark Tower and just sort of leave it at that. The, that the arc would have been Roland 
getting his friends and losing them along the way to different things. And then been still out there wandering alone, which is somewhat what happens. But because, as we talked about, book seven, the end there doesn't really match up with what we want to happen. If you want to apply the the quantum leap logic, which I love, (laughs) making Roland's purpose in the story ultimately is to protect the tower. And if it's going to send him on a loop or if he's never going to get to the tower for various reasons send him on to a different place each time do the the quantum leap thing and say like okay well this time you save the beam by breaking up Algociento, right next time you actually have to fix shardik instead of just destroying him or something right each time there's a different thing that roland needs to to fix and maybe he doesn't he doesn't realize it just like what king did but we're going into fan fiction a lot here already but if you're going to take away the the bit of closure from Roland and from us as the reader by making him, by basically saying the end is the beginning and then hitting the reset button, it feels like the same exact thing is going to happen again and again and again because we get, we're, we're basically told that this has happened again and again and again. Yeah. And it happens the same time, to- same way every time. Yeah. It makes it feel like the whole story doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I hate getting into the the fan fiction piece of it because, you know, who am I to tell King how he should have written it, what he considers his magnum opus and that he spent so many years on. I have two hot takes. One is that the series ultimately never should have ended and that Roland should have wandered forever. Or my alternate take was this shouldn't be a seven slash eight book series. It should have been a much tighter three book series that follows a much tighter path of getting to the tower and and completing the mission without all the side things that happen and be better planned out and have stronger world building but again that's me being picky so basically we uh were heartbroken that the the series ended the way it did or that it came together the way that it did is that we're just disappointed and i'll take it from this angle so i I had not read the series prior to us doing this project. Mm-hmm. And I had heard a lot about the Dark Tower series. We work with a number of people who've read the series and love it. I have not talked about the Dark Tower series with somebody who read it and said, man, I really did. I, I read those seven Stephen King books and I didn't like them. There are very few people that I know of who have read the entire series and said, boy, don't waste your time with that. <laughs> and Part part of that's self-selection, right? Like, oh, I read the first book and it wasn't for me and I stopped. Or yeah. I've never been interested in fantasy, so I'm not going to read that. I, I think people who make it through get all the way through it. I think when we started, as somebody who is a fan of and has been for 30 plus years of my life, a fan of post-apocalyptic fiction, there are a ton of great ideas that were presented in the first book that I was intrigued by and wanting to see play out. As somebody who likes genre mixing and saw what the first few books were doing, I was excited to see how that played out. I think that from what I've heard about the books, there was more potential and maybe that built me up more than what I was expecting. And so the heartbreak for me is knowing King's skills and knowing what could have been done with planning, which I think The Stand is a good example of something that I think has a clear B 
beginning, middle, and end, and works its way through, and the themes are the same all the way through, I think I would have liked something like that better. And so the heartbreak for me is knowing potentially what could have been with better planning. I'll buy that. Seems easy for us at this point playing the um, you know the hindsight editor to say, well, if you had changed this and excised that and streamlined this other thing, it would have been a way better story or would have made more sense or would have been more satisfying would have been a more satisfying ending but yeah and i'm sure there's probably people who are listening to this now who said well sean back in episode 27 you said such and such and you're contradicting yourself and i'm sure that that's true and you know nothing is perfect and and nothing can be and and you know something that's overly structured can be feel too too structured and not have room to breathe and not feel alive in a in another way if it's very prescriptive i've read books like that where the series is too by the notes so nothing is perfect i just think that this is potentially a little less perfect than i would have hoped for one of the things we wanted to talk about what do we think the whole series is about like what is king just telling a fantasy story or is there more to it and for me, and I think it's very clear as we get to the second half of the books, that King, as an author, is really talking about what does it mean to create stories. There is a lot of talk about inspiration and storytelling and what it means to tell a story and who's the creator of the story. Like That's brought out extensively in the last few books. And I do think that that ultimately is what these books mean to King and probably what, if we're not supposed to explicitly take away from what we do take away from them, the fact that he tries to link these books with his entire output to some extent to say that, as he does in the foreword of book four or five, that the Dark Towers is Jupiter, that all the other books revolve around in some way or are, are impacted by the gravity of it. Is him explicitly saying that that you know I'm I'm trying to tie all my work together and really making a statement of here is my life's work and they're all brought together by the dark tower which in it of itself represents creativity and life and ideas and everything I sort of think that that's what it's about ultimately what what does that mean to create stories and that's why to some extent he is a character in these books and why he's so important. To build on that, I think that this is a point that you've made in the past, is that in addition to just being about the creation of stories, I think this is about more purely or creativity itself. These books venture all over the place in genre. They venture all over the place in style and tone. And you could look at it as a, a master... A musician or or artist of, of of any type riffing on the rules mm. like each of these books is so different from the others it's like the an impressionist period for an artist or the blue period or after the artist has gotten to the point where they know what they're doing they have mastered their craft now they're going to start experimenting now they're going to start twisting and breaking rules to see what comes out of that and those are usually the works that are become the most famous, the most successful, the most renowned. I think that King has hit a lot of those high points throughout these books along the way. And that is because this is about creativity. It's, it's about 
you know, whether it's Patrick Danville being able to draw something so accurately that it he can actually manipulate the reality, whether it's these magical doors being able to link worlds, whether it's Jake getting visions of Blaine and, and getting obsessed with keys and Eddie being able to carve something that becomes magical because of what he put into it, its creation. This is all about that. This is about a creative person exploring what it means to be creative. And in that in that sense, I think these books are very successful. Oh yeah, I mean if we think of our quartet as superheroes in some way, their power is creativity. Suzanne is able to create in her mind things that she can manipulate. Mm -hmm. She creates a Dogen in her mind that she can go to. Yep. Jake has the visions that you just mentioned. Eddie can create the keys. Patrick Danville, like that's their superpowers. That's what's able to get them past obstacles and defeat enemies is that creativity. The, you know, the fact we talked about numerous times how even though Roland is a gunslinger, his guns are not always the way out of a situation. He's able to use diplomacy. He's able to, to use his other skills in a way to overcome things. King is making that point as well. And you're right to point that out. And the genre blending, I totally agree with that. Like that's, I think the big draw of these books is that they're not just a simple fantasy story, that they mix all these genres in such a way and, and really sort of seamlessly mm -hmm. that while we said as a whole, maybe we'd like to see some of these ideas play out differently. There's no question like, Hey, we're in a Western here and that's okay. And now we're in a, a, a mob movie in in part two. And yep. now we're in this weird science fiction landscape in, in book three. And it's not hugely jarring. I mean, we think it could have been done better, but like, it's wonderful how he's able to mix that. And no one says, oh, that's King the horror writer. It's no, King is the writer and he's able to master all these genres. Absolutely. So I think that's what he's up to. I think there's probably other themes that come through, you know, especially book four with the romance and, you know, there's pieces throughout about Roland's pride. But I do think creativity is the piece that links it all together. And he just does a great job of it. For all the criticism that we just laid out, we still kept reading these books. We still kept talking about these books. These are not bad books. No. They're just... They just fall short of perfect in a few ways and in a few places. And it's important for us to talk about that too. If anything, I think book seven is a good example of where the creativity sort of spills out over the pages. It is a eight to 900 page book. And there are so many ideas and thoughts that are put into book seven. New characters that are brought up, new situations. It's really sort of exploding with creativity. And that's one of the reasons that it doesn't seem to work because we're like, hey, how come we how come we didn't hear about this stuff earlier? Yeah. King just had this like, hey, I know I'm at the end. I want to get this book done. And one of the main reasons I want to get it done is because I thought I was going to die. And I had many people who told me, I want this series done before I die. I want to know what happens. And he realized with great alacrity that, hey, I might there was a chance that I could have left this unfinished. And so I want to finish this. And so I'm going to rush through it and I'm going to pour all these ideas out on the table. And maybe this should have been nine books if he was going to flow those through. But I think he had it in his head. I'm going to get seven books done. And even if I only spend a little bit of time on the Tet Corporation, here's what you got. 
Yep. I've got this great idea for this warden in Agul Ciento, and here he is, and I wish I could spend more time with him, but here's what you got. So, uh, yeah, it's overflowing with creativity, if anything. Uh, yeah, book seven should have been multiple books, or or it should have just been very different. It is overflowing, I, I think. So it's overflowing with goodness, but because there's so much of it, it's it feels messy, and therefore it's harder to accept it as something that is on par with, with what King can do and has done in terms of structure and quality and flow. Yeah. It's not his best work. It feels like it should have been the most important book in the series and the best book in the series. And instead it's, it's neither of those things. In our opinion. Yeah. There are people I think who do think that book seven is the best of the series. And when we looked at the ratings of the books, there's people who Goodreads and library thing, those ratings have book seven is rated the highest of all the books, which I think took both you and I as a surprise. Yes. And it makes me wonder if people were grading the series or if they were grading that book. It did it did rate high. So I think maybe you and I are the outliers on that. So why don't we talk a little bit about the characters? So along the way we've been talking about how the characters have grown and what their arcs are and I think King has done a great job of giving them fairly defined arcs, even some of the minor characters along the way, but definitely the major characters and how they go out and how they grow and advance through the story. I mean, King knows how you should structure that. And one of the big things that we've talked about and literary criticism talks about is really in a novel, a character should grow and change along the way. So maybe he's not the same person he was at the beginning of the book or Maybe she's changed along the way. I, the The log line for Breaking Bad always comes back to me when I think of character arcs. Vince Gilligan has said Breaking Bad is a journey from Mr. Chips to Scarface. Mm-hmm. And that really tells you everything you need to know about Breaking Bad. And the whole structure of that series was this arc of Walter White going from this well-respected teacher who cared about his family to a drug dealer with no concern for anyone but himself. I'm simplifying that a little bit, but like no, but the 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 drama and what's interesting about that story is how he gets from point A to point B. Yep, and we're seeing it in Better Call Saul too, right? Yeah. How does somebody who is devoted to becoming a lawyer turn into the sleazy criminal lawyer that he becomes? And it's like that with a lot of books. Like, just how does a character grow and and change along the way? To that end, what were your favorites of that? What was sort of the best example of a character arc that you think King succeeded with in the series? I think in terms of my favorite major character, I'd probably say Eddie. I think Eddie changed the most from when we first met him to when he leaves the story. And he's also just a fun character to be around, even when he's at his most abrasive and awful. He's entertaining. And then when he grows, the way that he is abrasive and awful changes with his character growth. Mm. It's It feels like King's most successful character in terms of how well he constructs that character and imbues that arc with detail. I, I'm not going to disagree with you. I think King has joked that Roland is sort of a stand-in for himself in the looks department and sort of maybe how he would picture himself. But I think Eddie might be the character he identifies with the most from that standpoint. I mean, you could see a lot of King's life in Eddie and just the type of person that I think 
somebody would want to be joking and loving and caring and damaged in some ways, but able to overcome that Mm -hmm. throughout the story. Roland is obviously a great character. I think he's probably somebody who's going to stand amongst the greatest of King's creations as far as characters. His arc is a little less defined than Eddie's, I think. You know, the fact that he actually has to start over again and change. But you can see that he's trying he he's trying to change along the way that the loner that he was at the beginning to by the end when he's begging on his knees for Susanna to stay with him because he doesn't want to be alone again. Mm-hmm. There's an arc there. Unfortunately, as we talked about, like after Susanna leaves and he sees the towers, he's sort of, for, he sees the tower. He sort of forgotten about that and is back to being alone. So he hasn't changed all the way. And potentially that's what King is talking about when there's this loop and the reason for the loop that, he hasn't quite changed all the way that he needs to 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 break that chain. So those would be my two call outs as well for major characters. Well, since uh, you also threw in Roland, I guess I'll throw in Oi <laughs> as my favorite. Less so about the character arc. I mean, Oi certainly does change and develop and grow, but he's still a lesser beast. He does talk, but there, the opportunity to show his growth in the way that a human character in the story can grow and change is just limited. But he goes from a dying animal scavenging for its perhaps its last meal to a welcome member of the group to a part of the family to ultimately the savior of our main character. Mm. That's a pretty good arc. And he sacrifices himself to do that. We meet him when he's near his end for various reasons he's been rejected by his own kind and then he leaves the story by sacrificing his own life to save Roland. and that's pretty good pretty good arc yeah and i don't think always ever let me down in terms of just being (laughs) a fun addition to the narrative and a fun addition to the group i gotta keep away high on that list so i think the big question that you and i had about just sort of the characters as a whole is were the characters in the series better off for knowing Roland? And that's sort of a big question, but it ultimately gets at sort of a big piece of this book is that this is Roland's quest, Mm -hmm. but by book two, he has drawn in the rest of his quartet, and it's not their choice to necessarily go on this quest at the beginning, and yet they're part of it. Book four is sort of a similar way that Roland has a quartet as well that has to go out to Magus. And we know ultimately what happens to them at the Battle of Jericho Hill. Mm-hmm. And Roland himself brings a lot of heartache and pain to the characters along the way. And are they better off for knowing Roland? Are they better off for being in the story? In a nutshell, I would say yes. While you are absolutely correct that Roland is the cause of much suffering for just about anybody who walks beside him on the path to the tower, especially the ones he seems to care most about. I don't think Ted Brodigan suffers at Roland's hand or neglect, but I don't think Ted Brodigan is terribly important to Roland, ultimately, in terms of how he feels about Brodigan, not necessarily in terms of his role in the story. I think that these characters all did ultimately benefit from being Roland's companion from being in his quartet, from being on this journey to the tower. 
even though all their stories ended in death <laughs> or in Susanna's case, it wasn't death, but it was a, a kind of chain that was sort of sad at the same time as being potentially happy. If you look at Eddie, if Eddie had never been drawn through the door onto the beach, he would have likely been dead from a drug overdose or had been murdered by mob guys within a short period of time. The only reason why he lived much beyond that point in his life was because he was drawn through the door. And the only reason why he stopped being a heroin user was because he was with Roland and he became obsessed with the tower and fell in love with Susanna. And that's another thing. He never would have met the love of his life and had all of those moments of happiness with Susanna if he hadn't been drawn into Roland's quartet. First of all, Susanna as a character would never have existed because she was Odetta and Detta before being drawn. And that disassociative identity disorder was a real problem for her life. And coming through and joining Roland in some ways helped to mend that. Uh, you know, Susanna gets, gets to meet Eddie and fall in love. And then, of course, you've got Jake. Jake was a prep school kid who had tons of problems in his home life. He was deeply unhappy. And we're told in the text that if Jake had continued on along that path in his life, he would have grown to be a very bitter man and someone probably much like his father, Elmer. And that's somebody who is constantly described to us and shown to us to be someone who we wouldn't want Jake to become. So in a sense, even though Jake's life is short because of Roland and the quest for the Dark Tower, the life that Jake lives in that shorter period of time, I think is far better, far happier, and far fuller than his life ever would have been if he had just grown up living and working in New York City, which is where he was heading before he met Roland. And when I say met, I mean pushed in front of a car, <laughs> died, get it dropped down a bottomless pit, come back to life, you know. But and and for those reasons and some of what I said before about Oi, I think that everybody did have a better life for as long as that life lasted. <laughs> Because of Roland and his quest for the tower. Even the minor characters like John Cullum, who's basically just a hick in the backwoods of Maine. He was a veteran and all of a sudden he has an opportunity to put his skills to, to work when Roland comes and appears in the middle of a gunfight. And he finds purpose in his life and is be able to become a founding father of the Tet Corporation and, and lead a full life there. Or even someone as minor as Irene Tassenbaum, who only knows rolling for a couple of days mm -hmm. and goes through this entire arc of, oh my God, this guy's going to kill me to I'm going to help him because he seems like a good person and I care about him and I'm falling in love with him and I'm sleeping with him and I'm going to still go back to my husband, but I'll always have the memory of those three days with, with this tall, dark stranger. They all do seem a little bit better off for knowing Roland in good ways and bad. I mean, it seems much worse for the major characters than it does for the minor characters. But yeah, it, it does work out that way. And again, I think part of that is King's skill as a writer. Yeah. We talked before about how even minor characters really come to life down to the stewardess back in book two, who had this whole backstory and felt like a real person in the 30 pages that we were with her when Eddie was freaking out as 
Roland inhabited his body on the airplane to more full characters who like Eddie. I mean, we can picture Eddie, right? Like Mm -hmm. Eddie is a character who we could describe and put in a situation and tell you how he would react in many ways. What we're saying very much flies in the face of what a lot of characters say to Roland, where they say, you doom everybody who follows you to the tower. They, they die. And it's like, that's the only thing that matters is that they die. But what about all the life they have up to the point that they die? Yeah. I think that there's something to be said for the merit of the quality of that life. If your life is short, but it's filled with wonder, is it a bad life? Or if your life is long, but it's miserable, is it a good life? Right. I think it's a matter of perspective. I think you and I, from the way we're looking at it, it seems that the answer to the, our, your initial question is yes. All of these characters that we dis- that we just discussed, we're better off for knowing Roland. Right. They're not cursed like he is to repeat things over and over again. I mean, Jake, to some extent, repeating his death over. Uh-huh. It's almost interesting to know, as Roland goes through his loop, do these characters have to go through the loop again as well? Because then that doesn't seem fair. Yeah. Then they're almost cardboard figures in the Roland story. Or is it only Roland who has to repeat things with slightly different outcomes? We get a hint about the answer to that, but I'm not sure if it's the same character. When they first get to Colibrin Sturgis and Eddie rides a horse for the first time, but within a moment realizes, I'm awesome, this is so familiar, I know what I'm doing. Was he remembering the echo of his last umpteen times through this loop? Or was he... Or is he more accurately sort of the reincarnation of Cuthbert? And because Cuthbert knew how to ride a horse. Because we're always getting that, right? Like, we don't know about the reset until the end of the seventh book. But we're constantly told that Roland's current quartet is an analog to his previous quartet. Correct. And there are direct similarity between these characters. And I think the two most similar ones are Eddie and Cuthbert. Mm-hmm. So it's like Eddie is Cuthbert, just with a different face. He somehow has his memories or his abilities or his muscle memory or something, you know, so it's why he can shoot and become a gunslinger. It's why he's he has the steel that Roland recognizes and respects. And that's why I guess he can ride a horse. But I don't know. Maybe it is just these guys are the cardboard cutouts in Roland's loop. He needs to save them as much as he needs to save himself. Yeah. By stopping the loop. So that's a good transition into the subtitles, which we haven't talked about previously. One of the reasons we have not talked about them is because they sort of give things away from book one. Obviously, not in the very first edition of The Gunslinger, but in the ones after he did the revision, there's a pre title page that says resumption, Mm -hmm. which now that we know what happens in book seven, we realize the resumption is the resumption of the quest that. What we're reading is basically a sequel to book seven in book one yep. as things go over. And just to remind you of what the subtitles are. So resumption for the gunslinger, renewal for the drawing of the three. Uh, so renewing the quartet, perhaps renewing people's lives as they are sort of born again. So Eddie's no longer a junkie. Odetta becomes Susanna. Jack Mort dies. Roland on the verge of death is sort of born again with the help of Keflex and Aston. Mm-hmm. Redemption is book three, The Wastelands. 
Book four is Regard, obviously a reference to the love between Roland and Susan. Book five, Resistance, which makes sense, Wolves of the Kala, as the town fights back. Book six, Reproduction, Susanna giving birth, pretty much on the nose. Mm -hmm. And then book seven has four, Reproduction, Revelation, Redemption, and then Resumption, which again ties right back into, completes the circle and gets us back to book one. You and I talked a little bit about book seven, Jay, and how it sort of doesn't match up how we want it to. The reproduction, revelation, redemption. Yeah. Reproduction is a continuation of book seven, which I guess sort of makes sense because Suzanne is having the baby at the beginning of book seven. The actual birth happens. She doesn't actually give birth until book seven. She's like about to give birth when book six ends. Then reproduction, the the birth, it doesn't happen until book seven. So it makes sense for King to repeat it here because it, I guess it spans the two books. Yeah. The revelation could be, we find out what the breakers are, we find out what the tower is. There is many, many, many things revealed in book seven to to us. We find out who Dandelo is. Yeah, that's revealed. Uh, the Tet Corporation, there's so much. Our redemption, I think, to some extent, each character sort of has a redeeming moment as their character arc ends in one way or the other, and then the resumption. I would have liked to have seen book seven a little bit more. You know, he divides the book up into five parts, I think. I would have almost liked to have seen one piece for each book part. But I would be interested, Jay, you've gone through the series now more than one time. How much does your reading of the series change knowing how the book ends or the series ends? I imagine that you must have been biting your tongue throughout our podcast as you, I realized as I was editing a recent episode that I said something about something coming full circle before I even got to the end Uh and realized, oh my God, I said full circle. And that's exactly what is happening without me realizing it. I'm sure that there were multiple times throughout the series when you were doing things like, oh my God, Sean, you're so closer. Yeah. Yeah. What he's saying here and what Randall Flagg is talking about during the, the revelation is actually speaking directly to book seven. Yeah. There were a lot of moderately fascinating moments in our conversations along the way. But the, that was fun. I, I mean, it was to hear you come so close or, or hit right on something like that without realizing it. It speaks to your ability to, I guess, correctly analyze what's, you know, a story structure and, and potential outcomes, but also King's ability to foreshadow in a, in a good way that he's showing you what might happen without directly revealing it. Although he does do certain things like that occasionally. Um, he loves to undercut his foreshadowing. Does reading it a second time or a third time or a fourth time change? I would say that the biggest change and maybe the only real important change is the fact that book one itself changes. King only made revisions to book one, and he only did that to make the loop make more sense, essentially. He did a little bit more sprinkling in of the world building stuff, but by adding resumption to the title page, by adding enough content to make, there's there's that line very, very early in the, maybe even the second page of the book where Roland feels disoriented for a moment as he's chasing the man in black across the desert. And that's just like, okay, he's dehydrated and overheated and he was a little dizzy. Great. 
you finish book seven and you reread that page, totally different meaning, totally different. Yeah. And I had the, I guess, even more pronounced experience of that because I read the original version of book one multiple times and was very familiar with its content. Not so much that I could cite it word for word or just from memory tell you this changed or this this is different. But after I read the original version multiple times and then read the rest of the series and then reread book one, the new version with you on, on the podcast, I was seeing all of these things that just felt different and that felt mm-hmm. added to or tweaked or, oh, this connects directly to things that happen much later in the story, if not just the end of book seven, but just things that are coming. You know, like mention of the Crimson King, yep. things like that. None of those things were in the original version of the book. So that did really change things for me. And But once you get past the first book, since none of the others changed, I was just enjoying them a second time. From there, it's just the straight progression that we made to the final book. So yeah. knowing about the loop, knowing that this is perhaps the five billionth time that Roland has done this when he helps uh, Susanna to become a gunslinger and shoot the radar dish off of Shardik's head. I don't think that was any different for me, just citing one example. So do you think there were opportunities that King should have taken if he were to go back and revise? And I'm guessing it's basically books two, three, and four, because I'm assuming by book five, he knew where what was happening to a very great extent. And I'm sure if we looked at five and six, we would see multiple occasions where he's building up to book seven and maybe not so much in two, three, and four. I mean, he has said before that if he had an opportunity, he he almost saw that writing the series was a first draft Mm -hmm. and that he had every intention to go back and rewrite it, which I doubt. Yeah. I mean, I think he said now that's not going to happen, that book one was going to be it, but I wonder what he would have done differently in two, three, and four. I think they all could have benefited from just a little bit of world building detail. Just that, Mm. like, just enough to make it feel like all of the extra detail of the world that he does in five, six, and seven doesn't feel completely new mm. in those later books. Just sprinkle in a bit more of the Kamala stuff or a little bit more of the the crazy fake language. Yep. I've never been a big fan of it because I just reject it because it's it's just weighted towards the end of the series of books. Yeah. Doesn't make up a whole song in book one. He just says they're singing Hey Jude. Right. By book five, he's making up this whole Kamala song. I get it. I get why he did it, but if he were to re re edit some of these, just to sprinkle in a little bit more of the detail of the world. And I think it would make everything just click together that much more. And I think book four probably needs it the least. Because it's all flashback and Magus has its own culture and its own language and its own yep. structure of like how the town works. So that's fine the, the way it is. Um, right. So one of the other things that we've done throughout our entire podcast is introduce this podcast by saying that we're going to look at Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. And... I wonder if we think that this is Stephen King's magnum opus. And I realize that a lot of that is based on what you mean by magnum opus and what critics mean by that. 
I'll tell you the way that I sort of think of it, and then perhaps I'm defining it in a way that you know where what the answer of my question is going to be. But <laughs> you know, I almost think of it as this is the work that a hundred years from now, when people aren't going to remember all fifty plus books that King wrote, what's the one that stands out and is representative of King the writer? What is the one that he is best known for that critics will go back to and point to? And what do they think is really the the best representation, not only of the writer and the themes that that writer took, but even almost of the time that that writer lived in and is a good representation of that. And I do think that King is somebody who, if you were to look at late 20th century fiction, he's going to be probably somebody who stands out in that way. Oh, absolutely. I don't think he's going to be forgotten like any number of other writers might be. I think he'll stand out, even though- Who you can't remember for some reason. Yeah, the ones I can't remember. But like, even though he might not have gotten as much critical acclaim, especially early in his career, I think that there will be people who look back and still read him long after you and I and King are gone. Do we think that this will be his magnum opus based on all that? Before I answer the question, I'll say this is a very murky subject <laughs> to analyze and therefore a difficult question to answer because so many things get mixed up in that analysis. Or is it the character that kind of shines through? Is it one of the eight books that elevates the rest? If we take like Sylvester Stallone and the Rocky franchise, for example, is Rocky the movie, the first one? Stallone's magnum opus mm. or is it really not that great of a movie but the character of Rocky Balboa is so fundamentally ingrained within our own zeitgeist that it feels like it doesn't matter like all the movies just sort of just melt into one thing and the fact that Sylvester Stallone created this character of Rocky Balboa that that means that Rocky the the everything yeah. not just Rocky 1 is his magnum opus. So applying that same the same cockeyed thought process <laughs> to the Dark Tower, King has achieved so many amazing things here. He's created this character of Roland Deschane. He's created this world of the Dark Tower and in the, the mythos around what a gunslinger is. And all those things are amazing. But I don't think this is his magnum opus, based on the way you asked, the based on the way you framed your question, because it simply does not stand out like several of King's other books do. I would place the stand or it way above this in terms of notoriety, popularity, quality. So therefore, I would say I would elect one of those books as the book that he will be remembered for. When historians are writing about Stephen King. 100 years from now, they're going to say Stephen King, the author of It, not author of The Dark Tower. Yeah, I agree. And I'm sure you could tell that I was leaning that way based on how I phrased it. If you were to say, hey, this is his biggest work, and it's the one that he thinks is his magnum opus, then obviously, yeah. But I don't think that length and what the author chooses should necessarily come into it. And I don't think it's going to be something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or even the Marvel Universe in comics, where people are going to look at his total output and say, hey, look, this was all of this was all self-contained and referenced back to one another. Because I don't think 
the connections are even there as strong as they need to be. I know that he refers to other books in this book and this book, The Dark Tower gets referred to in other books, but I don't think you need that to understand all the rest of the books, even though that's something that we're going to discuss in the future of the of this podcast series as, as we explore that. Yeah. I think that that's something neat and sort of like an in-joke or not an in-joke, but like, hey, if you're in the know, you know these things. Um, much like if somebody's watching Daredevil and they mention something about the Avengers, the sharp-eyed reader can say, oh, yeah, look, I, I, I get that reference. But again, from a character standpoint, from a story standpoint, from a world-building standpoint, early King, it's probably going to be Salem's Lot, The Shining, or The Stand. Mid-period, classic 80s King, it's going to be It. And I almost think like later king i see a lot of love for 11 yeah i don't know if that's sort of a timing issue and as people approach that but like of his later books i think that there's a big lull between like the 80s and the early 2000s where not a lot of those books sort of stand out as classic king or great king but for some reason, that's another book that I think people might look to as later King as something. I don't think it'll ever be as magnum opus like it or the stand will. I think those will always be the ones as representative. And I would argue to some extent that maybe Stephen King is a better short story writer than a novelist. Oh, yeah. I, I might argue for some short stories as sort of best representative of King and that maybe that would be the approach to take with him. But again, I do think that the Dark Tower is always going to be seen as, and Stephen King worked on this as well. Mm -hmm. It was a, if not pet project for him, it's something that was deeply loved by a small portion of his fan base, but not really what he's going to be best known for. Sounds like we agree. Sorry, Steve. I guess we have to change the uh, intro to our podcast from now. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go retcon that as we do our edit. Just uh, uh -huh. maybe we'll only do it for the first book. <laughs> Jay, we've been pretty consistent about having fun stuff and doing fun stuff for the series as a whole is something that I think we should do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always ready for some fun stuff. So I think for our fun stuff, I think the way that you and I approach this is when we look back on the series, what what are the things that stood out for us is like that's something I'm going to remember and that's something that that brought me joy or if I were to recommend the series or have a fan discussion with somebody else who I knew loved the series and say, hey, do you remember when? I think that's sort of how we approach this. So what would be one of your top fun stuffs for the series, Jay? I'm probably leading with my favorite thing. Roland killed a whole town. <laughs> he did. Way back in book one. Way back in book one. And as the astute listener to our show is probably aware, that's my favorite book of the series. <laughs> Roland killed a whole town. I had never encountered something like that before in any book that I had read, even books about people who kill people, <laughs> a whole town. It's crazy. And the character of Roland does show some kind of regret that he did this, but it gives us an immediate window into who he is and what he is as a character, what he's capable of and how far he's willing to go to stay alive or to continue his quest or both? Is it the quest that's motivating him to stay alive or is it just animal instinct is not clear, but 
his training allows him to do this, to kill an entire town with two revolvers. He gets out of it with a couple of scrapes and a couple of scratches. Luckily for him, nobody else has a firearm. Otherwise, he couldn't have done that. When I read that the first time, I couldn't believe what I had just read. And every time I've reread that book, and I have now read it four or maybe five times, that is my favorite part of the book. And it continues to be one of, if not my very favorite part of the whole series. And it's it's not about like the bloodlust. It's not that I take pleasure in the fact that all these people are dying. It's that King as an author and Roland the gunslinger as a character are doing something that is just off the wall. And King writes it so well. I feel like I'm standing right beside Roland as this is happening. And I, mm. I hear music that isn't even talked about. And, and I picture this as a movie and it's so vivid and it's so incredible. And, and it is because of that scene, because of that moment in that book that I immediately knew that I was going to read everything I could get my hands on regarding this character and regarding the story. I have remained a pretty diehard fan ever since. You had described that as very cinematic and you can sort of picture it and see it even set to music. I think for me, for the same sort of reasons, it's Eddie fighting naked at the side of Roland against the the gangsters in book two. Mm -hmm. It's the image of this sort of strung out junkie who's got really no choice at this point. Like this is all that's left to him. It is just this sort of beautiful ballet dance of gunfire in this very small room and section, and it's just well-described and well-done, and just this picture of this strange man who's dressed up like Clint Eastwood and a naked junkie sort of fighting off against a bunch of mob bosses is just great. And then it's got you know the added horror of... Eddie's brother's head sort of rolling into the room. Yeah. There's just so much detail there. Not necessarily fun. Like, I don't enjoy seeing people shot up. I don't enjoy somebody being beheaded, but I can just sort of picture all that. And it it is it stands out as a fantastic set piece for me. Yeah. And King does such a wonderful job with that. There is the elation of the victory there of surviving the moment of our for our main characters, but there's also the deep tragedy and, and sadness and of Eddie losing his brother and the fact that they were almost reunited. Eddie's motivation was to save his brother and he was in the other room. Yep. And before they even have a chance to acknowledge like, hey, I'm here for you, brother. They murder his brother and throw his head in the room. <laughs> and Eddie just keeps fighting. It's That's another great one for sure. And we don't even mention the fact that Roland is mutilated at that point. Yeah. <laughs> is unable to be as effective as he was in Tull in shooting everyone with two guns because he is down a hand at this point, you know, is not at full strength. Uh, another nice little detail. My next sort of fun one is just because he's my favorite comic book character is the Dr. Doom references, hmm. especially in Wolves of the Call. Like I just, again, Dr. Doom is a very cinematic villain. I can hear his voice just in the writing that so many writers have done in my years of reading comics that I can hear Dr. Doom's voice. I can see him. A number of Dr. Doom's riding on a bunch of robot horses into town is just a, a cool visual. I still don't quite understand why it's in here or what, if it needs to make sense. Like I know we talked a lot about why does King have references to Harry Potter and Marvel comics and other things. 
eh, who cares why? It's just cool. Maybe he's just a big fan of Doctor Doom like you are, and that's all. Yeah. It, that is pretty great. I mean, once you get to that point, you're just, all right, King, show me. Yeah. Just just show me. what what What's next? This is, I'm, I'm along for the ride. Let's go. Another really great moment that I, that I really loved is going back to book two. All the time that Roland spends inside Jack Mort's mind. Mm. It's the third drawing. It's the third door. It's Jack Mort. Because of the the mental link, Roland immediately understands that he's the serial killer and that he is the same person who first injured Odetta and then handicapped Odetta and has also killed and hurt numerous other people. And I think he's also the same person who pushed Jake. Yep. Sort of, kind of, right? So because of, I guess, Ka, it's, it's the only way that this is possible, but I love all of Roland's interactions with Jack Mort because by the time he gets into Jack Mort's mind, he's experienced with how this magic door functions and he knows that he can control the body fully and he can do things and force the mind to do things as well. And he has access to all of his memory and information. And because he, he doesn't respect Jack Mort as a human being, because he is such a terrible, terrible person. <laughs> Roland plays it that way. And he takes full advantage of just like complete control and all the interactions with the cops and the shootout in the pharmacy and his ultimate revenge on Jack Mort by setting himself on fire and then jumping in front of a moving train. All of it. Just, just so great. And yep. King spends so much time, just like he did with the mobsters. We care. There's There are real stakes in that fight because we have spent so much time with these characters who ultimately vanish from the story at, in that, that gunfight. We spent so much time with all with Jack Mort and the people around him and the people in the pharmacy even. Yep. We get point of view from the pharmacist and it's just great. Every part of that is great. There's a lot to love in these books. And I think there's one last thing that I think not only do you and I love, but potentially anyone who's encountered these books in any form loves, and that's that opening line. Oh, yeah. I think 99% of writers would kill to have an opening line like that. And knowing now the whole series, the fact that it ends with that line as well, just the perfect symmetry of starting the series with the perfect line and then ending it with the same perfect line. It's great. And we'll talk a little bit about this in our next episode, I guess I'll just tease it with the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. I would almost like to see that as the thesis for the entire series. And I think one of the things that I think could greatly improve the books was if the man in black was really the big bad throughout the entire series. I can dig it. And not the Crimson King. And we'll talk a little bit about that in our next episode. That's sort of my cliffhanger to get you guys beyond the series and into episode 56 as we talk a little bit more. I can't wait. Excellent. Well, Jay, that is going to bring us to the end of this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Sean. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. 
You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we discuss reader feedback and comments and our thoughts on how we might tweak the series to maybe do things a little bit differently. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. We went on a high note, Jerry. A high note.